Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today I'll be joined by Mark Heppenstall. Mark is the President and Chief Investment Officer of Penn Mutual Asset Management, where his team of over 30 analysts and portfolio managers run about $30 billion for Penn Mutual Life Insurance. He's an alum of Vanderbilt and Carnegie Mellon Universities and is also a CFA charter holder. I have two goals for the show today. Uh, one is to shed some light on the nuance that is applied when a money manager manages specifically for an insurance client, as opposed to, say, an individual or a pension or a foundation. And also, I'm looking for Mark, who's very at home in the fixed income trenches, to shed some light on where we are in credit and other bond markets and see where he's seeing the value. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Mark, let's start with the high-level topic of managing money for an insurance company. Now, I was fortunate in that early in my career, I had the opportunity to be mentored under a very experienced investor like yourself, a fellow named Tony Gage. And he'd been key to building the insurance company at, uh, or the insurance business rather, at my former asset management firm. So he had us read Buffett's letters and integral in there was a lesson in how insurance businesses actually make their money. As I recall it, the most important driver of profitability was not their ability to eke out fat margins by pricing the risk. You know, it's still important, but, you know, charging premiums that would far exceed their ultimate liabilities, but rather it was in maximizing the return on the float that exists while there's that mismatch between the receipt of those premiums and any ultimate payouts. Now, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but uh, as I understand it, anyways, that's where you come in. So can you please take a talk a bit about what's unique about the investment goals and, and how you structure a portfolio for, say, in your case, a life co. Well, I'll start off with, at the end of the day, the assets that we manage for Penn Mutual Life Insurance Company are driven entirely by the lit liabilities or the insurance and annuity policies that are underwritten. And we manage for those policyholders. So we are very much focused on what's happening within the liabilities. And so we are liability-driven investors. The vast majority of our assets are high-quality fixed-income securities investment grade primarily. And so really, we manage those assets very much in line with the, the liabilities, both in terms of one, staying up in credit quality, but also managing in line with the interest rate risk or duration risk embedded within the liabilities. And just on an asset portfolio, the liability duration can be dynamic. So it can move with the level of interest rates. It can move with policyholder behavior. So we recalibrate the duration of those liabilities on a regular basis just to make sure, again, that those assets and liabilities are very much in line with one another. So, I mean, it's obviously we've had a, a big pivot in the last couple of years here. So what did, what did that look like for insurance companies in terms of how they were treated by rating agencies and their overall quality sort of in the 10 years leading up till the most recent period in sort of 2022 plus? And then, you know, what's that done for their liability profile and, and, and what you've been doing for them? Well, I will say, you know, really since the global financial crisis, we have been in a world of very, very low interest rates. And again, given the fact that the vast majority of our assets are fixed income assets, the new money rates that were available um, in a world where the 10-year treasury note which was, let's say, between 1% and 3% for the vast majority of the time. The opportunity set was somewhat limited. So I will say what has happened within the fixed income markets during the past 21 months or so has been quite remarkable. Um, clearly, 
the Fed's response to inflation that got to be a bigger problem than I think they ever envisioned in 2021 forced them to really catch up quickly with short-term interest rates. And so, again, the opportunity set for investing in high-quality fixed income is so much better than I ever would have imagined that it might be two years ago. So we're putting high-quality fixed income assets on in that 7 to 8% zip code, really focused today at the front end of the yield curve where you know it's been somewhat of an interesting time in the world of fixed income with the extended inversion of the yield curve, you're actually paid not to take risk. So we've been disciplined with asset liability management, but again, focused on the most attractive relative value within the world of fixed income. And again, the opportunity set today is so much better. And in terms of the liability duration, it has performed as you would expect it, similar to the asset duration that tends to short, shorten as interest rates are on the move higher. That's also been the case with the liability duration. So there is that sensitivity to interest rates. We really haven't seen policyholder behavior change much at this point. So that has been less impactful in terms of the duration of our liabilities. But again, something that we are closely monitoring to, to again, make sure that assets and liabilities stay within line with each other. Yeah, that's something that folks may not appreciate, which is that in an environment like this, as long as you have those assets and liabilities matched off, it kind of doesn't matter what interest rates do. But in, in a vacuum, as rates fall, the discount rate effectively for your liabilities rise. The present value of your liabilities actually goes down. So it's actually a, a tailwind for you if, if you happen to be short. Yes, exactly. And we have been managing really short the duration of the asset portfolio relative to our liabilities really for the past two years now. Again, you know, there were periods of time in 2021 where the investment grade bond universe yield to maturity traded below the 2% level. So again, given sort of the inability to earn much in the world of fixed income, we were relatively conservative with our portfolio positioning. We did hold more floating rate assets. Again, especially at the front end of the yield curve, it just paid you to have floating rate assets within the portfolio that at least had the optionality for higher yield and income should interest rates rise. So again, they have both been a benefit to the Penn Mutual portfolio. Right. And just for our listeners, for a life co, what's the sort of the general duration that we're talking about here? And by that, for, for our listeners, that's you know, what's the sort of the, the sensitivity of the portfolio? And, the, and it's a function of kind of when they expect those liabilities to come due. Yeah. And again, that can vary among life insurance companies based on the type of products that they are selling. But the duration of the, the liabilities that we're managing to is in that six and a half to seven year duration today. Right. So basically universe type mandate or that type of a duration match. Exactly. Yes. So I wanted to turn to talk a little bit about credit. So, you know, we're talking in mid-October and we have seen a bit more volatility in credit markets recently, but uh, what are you watching for in terms of signals or catalysts, either positive or negative for corporate credit? And what, and what are you seeing out there? Well, there has been an interesting dynamic that we've seen, and I, I think this is somewhat kept a lid on the level of credit spreads. And I would say that's true for both investment grade and high yield credit, but I think just because treasury rates have increased so much during the past two years, that the all-in yields now available for investment grade and high yield investors is almost the metric that they're looking at, I would say, more so than the spread component or what you're getting paid relative to treasuries. So I, I think just again, the fact that interest rates have risen so much, that absolute returns are relatively robust for investment grade and high yield, especially 
again, since the global financial crisis, all of that, I think, is factored into credit spreads remaining relatively benign. You know, I do think today, just given the starting point for spreads, you know, we're finding more attractive opportunities in the world of securitized credit relative to investment grade and high yield corporate credit. So how would you compare if you're looking at it today to how things were back in 08? Like what did credit spreads tell us then and, and, and how is that message the same or different this time? Well, I have always felt that credit spreads were always somewhat the canary in the coal mine when it came to what was happening within other risk markets. And I think that was true as we came into the global financial crisis where we saw a lot of weakness in the credit markets. And I would say that was especially true among certain bank and broker names coming into the to the financial crisis. And that really preceded the eventual downturn that we witnessed within the equity market. So we haven't seen nearly the indication today in the credit markets that would suggest that we're headed down a similar path. The only caveat I would throw out there is that you know bank lending has been tightening pretty dramatically. So even though the public markets for high yield and investment grade credit are pretty wide open still, I would say bank lending has become much more constrained. So I think that might be a headwind for economic growth ahead. Yeah, it's interesting because you look at the yield curve and you talk, you mentioned before about the, the surge in short rates, obviously tracking the Fed's activity. But also, I mean, we had an inversion in that yield curve for a while, which is often a precursor or a predictor of recession. But you couple that with relatively benign spreads still and, you know, relatively low default rates in the bank so far, like it's kind of a mixed message. So how do you see this playing out? Is it soft landing? Is it hard landing? Like what, what do you, what do you think? What is your base case at, uh, at Penn Mutual? Well, I will say, I think sometimes we tend to get a little bit too caught up in the technical definition of a recession. So whether or not we actually have two quarters of negative growth back to back, I think that is somewhat up in the air. And I do think part of why I would say the markets and the economy has been so resilient this year is just there's been a lot of consumer spending. Initially, it was going towards goods as the economy shut down due to COVID. And now that is all transitioned to the service side of the economy. So we're seeing the service sector spending really support the overall economic growth. Equity markets have stayed relatively elevated. Obviously, we've seen um, you know a downturn last year in equities, but we've seen a pretty significant bounce back so far this year. Home prices have remained relatively stable despite the fact that mortgage rates are well into the 7% range today. So I think all of that has helped um, household wealth stay relatively high and again, been supportive of overall economic growth and I see the Atlanta Fed today just raised their third quarter GDP estimate to over 5%. So I would say a year ago or at the start of the year, nobody ever would have expected we would see such robust economic growth in the United States. It sounds like you have relative confidence in the, in the household balance sheet at this point then, given all the stimulus and the, you know, the indications that folks are putting that money to work and moving from products into services. Am I understanding that right? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think... It's hard to see a near-term recession. Again, you know, if you look at the majority of economic forecasters, they've all pushed out their recession forecasts now well into 2024. But again, just given what's happening with household wealth, given relative stability within the financial markets, again, it, 
you know, there just aren't a lot of leading indicators that suggest that an economic downturn is imminent today. So since since you and I chatted a, a few weeks ago for the first time, Mark, the I, I think high yield spreads have widened out a little bit from that point. Is the time coming for high yield? Well, I, I would say versus history, you know, I would say we were kind of just into the average territory. So I don't know that I would necessarily put a green light on high yield investment opportunities. You know, we have been more focused at on opportunities at the front end of the yield curve within the high yield space. And I would say that is true across the securitized credit markets as well. So again, I, I think valuations are reasonable today. But again, there still is a lot of uncertainty, some of it tied, as I mentioned earlier, to what's happening within the banking system today. So again, that's something that we're clearly keeping a close eye on for potential potholes down the road. Something I talked about on the last episode with Rodri Priest was, was that when inflation finally recedes, we will likely be left with real and nominal rates that are far higher than what was considered normal over the last 15 years. Would you agree with that? And, and what opportunities would that open up with higher real rates? Well, again, you know, if you were to tell me um, 18 months ago or 20 months ago that real yields, whether it's the five-year, the 10-year, or the 30-year, would all be in the zip code of 2.5%, I would say that is extremely attractive. And so, you know, I do think that tips are a great diversifier within a fixed income portfolio because as we've clearly seen, inflation is the nemesis of nominal bond performance. And so at least with the tips component, you are getting uh, that inflation adjustment embedded into your return. So again, I do think real yields in the vicinity of 2.5% today are attractive. And I think that that goes back to when tips were first issued in the late 90s, not just relative to what's happened since the, the great financial crisis. Can you explain for our listeners, Mark, what, what TIPS are? I, I'm try, I was trying to remember what the actual acronym was, but it's effectively that they're inflation-protected bonds, right? Yeah, Treasury Inflation-Protected Securities. And so the principal value in a TIP adjusts higher every month with the CPI print. So basically, you're getting compensated for the consumer price index changes with a higher principal value within your underlying investment. So the coupon rate stays the same, but again, your total returns are going to benefit from higher inflation readings if you buy and hold them to maturity. So again, there is sort of an inflation hedge embedded within the tips performance that you don't get within the nominal bond market. So what gets you excited today? Well, I will say, I do think the tips markets are attractive where they sit today in the vicinity of 2.5%, especially in that five-year part where there really isn't a lot of duration or interest rate risk embedded within the security. Again, I, I could see them winning under whether there's a downturn in inflation and the Fed eventually lowers interest rates, I think real yields are going to fall. And again, if inflation stays sticky, again, earning a 2.5% real yield over that CPI will be attractive as well. And in one of the other areas where we are sourcing opportunities in an area we really haven't been investing since the financial crisis, partly resulting from what the Federal Reserve has been doing with quantitative easing and buying up agency residential mortgage-backed securities. But you know, the valuations there look so much different than they did a couple of years ago again as the Fed has turned into um, not selling the RMBS, but not purchasing at this point. But again, the rise in rates means that we're finding opportunities in the RMBS sector in 70s and low 80s type of dollar prices today. 
So again, much better upside downside in terms of price performance versus where we stood two years ago when almost the entirety of the mortgage market was priced over par. So again, a much better asset liability management investment where they stand today in the RMBS sector. And any other securitized stuff that's got your attention? We have been investing in AAA collateralized loan obligations and student loan asset-backed securities. Again, you know, the leverage loan market has been an area of focus. I do think that the fact that anybody that's borrowing in floating rates today obviously is paying a lot more in interest costs than they did a couple of years ago. So that's something that we're keeping an eye on. But again, at the AAA level, we think we're well protected from any delinquencies and eventual losses within the CLO space. And again, for student loan asset-backed securities, again, staying up in credit quality in there and Again, that's where we're sourcing opportunities in that 7 to 8% type of zip code for, for new yields. So some of the listeners on the show today will have a little bit of a PTSD reaction to CLOs. I know I know that they've actually persisted and been around uh, since the great financial crisis, but can you, can you walk us through what's different now in, in, the, in the CLO market versus some of the issues that happened in the crisis back in 08, 09? Well, I will say CLOs was one of the fixed income asset classes with the acronyms that actually survived and performed well. So, you know, the realized losses within the sector were very, very small. Clearly, the mark to market, you know, as, you know, risk was selling off in 08, 09 was a very different story in, in terms of the price performance. But ultimately, you know, the sector did return principal for the vast, vast majority of the investments there. So again, we think it's a sector that's well protected, even in more dire economic scenarios. So again, staying up in, in credit quality there and a sector where we think we're getting paid handsomely for the rest of the day. But again, you know, we look at all of the leveraged loans, all of the performance of the underlying loans, and we tend to buy more seasoned securities, ones where the AAA tranches are in the process of or near beginning to pay down. So again, we think we're going to have a pretty short weighted average life type investment on our hands with a lot of the CLOs we're purchasing today. And and you mentioned the the student loan asset-backed securities as well. What are the implications for the any payback delays or return return to the schedule for that? How, how does that market respond to that? Like what what are the things folks should be thinking about when they're when they're reading the news and then looking at at ABS and that in that part of the market? Well, the student loan debt repayment resumption clearly is going to be a headwind for overall economic growth. Some estimates have it at $100 billion a year reduction in um, consumer spending that'll be available versus before. So again, I would say net-net, it's going to be a tough one. You know, Most of, I would say, the more challenging components of the student loan market, unfortunately, reside today on the government's balance sheet. So if you look at the performance within the private student loan space, it's been very, very solid. And again, with the unemployment rate so low as it stands today, you would expect there to be not too many issues for some of the private student loan securities. So again, I would say the bigger picture for the economy is could be more challenging. But again, you know, we think there are attractive investment opportunities within the student loan space. And that's in the private space, but also in the government guaranteed student loans as well. Gotcha. Well, unfortunately, this is uh, we're already down to our final question here, Mark. So I wonder if you can tell me, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Wow, that is a good question. So 
my first job in investments was with the National Bank of Detroit and their trust department. And the National Bank of Detroit, through a bunch of mergers, has eventually turned into J.P. Morgan today. But, you know, I will say, you know, more than 35 years of investing in the fixed income markets, you know, every day is different. I, I never have a boring day. And if you look at what's happening within the world of credit and interest rates today, every day presents new challenges. So I would just say that, you know, if you're considering a career in investing, in investing I think the fixed income markets are a great place to be. I've been speaking today with Mark Heppenstall, CFA president and CIO of Penn Mutual Asset Management. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Mark. Thanks, Mike. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.